Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our weekly Dhamma session. These days we're going through the Majjhima Nikaya. The, it's a group of discourses of the Buddha that we call, we say are middle length. So they're not too long and not too short. There are long ones that are also not too long, but they're longer. And there are also short ones, which are not too short. But these are the middle-length ones, which to put them in a special place is sort of just the right size for consumption. Yeah, useful for our purposes. which are, our purposes are to provide inspiration and insight into meditation practice. So we're trying to pick topics that will be useful and beneficial for meditators to help us, help us free ourselves. Really, our meditation is about changing the way we look at the world and opening up our hearts to the way things actually are helping us to see that uh, a lot of the way we look at the world is is flawed and there's so many reasons for that there are reasons of culture religion uh, also parents and role models some of it's just due to chance. Our, the way culture evolves is sometimes just due to chance, the way beliefs evolve. You think of that story of uh, Henny, Henny Penny, is it? The sky is falling. How something happens and it creates beliefs. that uh, spread. Point being that much of our belief system and our way of looking at the world is makeshift. And we do the best we can. Some of us do better than others. Some do quite poorly and end up with views that cause them great suffering, stress. Some do better. Some are lucky enough I would say luck is really the right word, but happen upon a, a way that is actually beneficial and leads to happiness. But our, our, our intention and, and the Buddha's intention really in teaching was to clear all that up and, and provide some direction that if uh, examined, followed, and and observed as in, as far as results, one would be able to see that hmm, this is the way things actually are. Much different than just the way I believe things to be. Because it, some of the suttas I've been skipping here, he goes over this again and again. Belief turns out to be two, turns out one of two ways, right or wrong, basically, is what he says. Your... Uh, 
your your religious books can say things and you say, well, it says in this book. It can turn out one of two ways. Uh, it can be tradition, it can be uh, all sorts of... Because of your teacher, well, these are these famous charismatic, charismatic teachers say this. It can turn out one of two ways. So today we're looking at the Panchataya Sutta, which is an interesting name. It means five and three. It doesn't really say what the five and the three are, but I think I have an idea. And again, I'm not going to go mainly through the sutta or completely through the sutta. I encourage you to read it as with all of them. But again, we're more interested in what sort of lesson it has for us. And what this sutta is really talking about. The five is referring to five types of view, mainly about the self. And the three is talking about the three time periods. One gets caught up in views about the future, about the past, or one get, gets caught up about the present. That's what the sutta, it, it has a really interesting take on all three of these that I think is useful for meditators. So hopefully there's some benefit here. So the five, you don't really have to enumerate them. I mean, there are four, four of them have to do with self and really have, have to do with the future. So we're, we're talking about the three time periods. The three is the three time periods. And really what this sums up, I think, quite well, it sums up a lot, if not all, of spirituality gone wrong. And that's, I mean, it's its harsh to say gone wrong, but you have to unpack this because according, in, the Buddhism sees, or the Buddha saw the whole of of the universe. I'm not just talking about the physical universe, but all the realms of being. He, he called this samsara. We know this term is familiar. And in that context, in the context of calling this all samsara, anything that keeps you in samsara is wrong. And it's a very specific sort of wrong because someone can do right right things in samsara, right? Well, someone can be a good person and go to heaven. And you would say, well, that's the right thing. You did the right thing. So we might not call it wrong. I, I, I don't want to be too harsh, but limited. We would call it spirituality that doesn't lead to a concrete goal or, or freedom, let's say. It leads to samsara, to wandering, wandering around in circles. Being born again is the idea. And so the only thing in Buddhism that can be different is what he calls the cessation of formations, right? What does he call the cessation of formations? But let's not let's let's start start the start. So people believe in self, and belief in self 
I'll take that out of the sutta because that's uh, pull that out of the sutta because that's a very important thing to pull out and talk about. Clearly, you don't have to have the Buddha point out how important the self is, the soul, I. How important that is in in Western thought, anyway. I don't know what it, if you could argue that in other cultures, various cultures, there are various levels of this, but I think it's fair to say that most cultures, most people in the world have a strong sense of self, and that's very important. And in the Buddha's time, it was very important, and it was disturbing for people that the Buddha would would denounce their views. And so a lot of Buddhists have have uh, been quick to say that the Buddha thought there was no self. Other Buddhists have been quick to say that the Buddha never said that, and the Buddha didn't teach there was no self, and the Buddha didn't deny the existence of the self. And so we get all these different conflicting ideas, arguments. People believe in self. They have this idea that, particularly the Buddha refers to the future, the idea that uh, the soul continues on. The soul continues on and, and, and is aware and unimpaired after death. And then some other people, some people see that as limited. And, you know, we're dwelling a little bit into the way they thought in India because it might not seem that familiar, but I, I can show how, how it actually is quite familiar. If, if you think about the Hindu concept of the, the uh, popular Hindu concept of samsara, it's that we're bo the soul is born again and again and again, and it's part of this endless uh, illusion of of the world, and so someone would maybe be quick to say that's not leading anywhere, and that to do that again and again and again is is missing something. And so there was a lot of talk about moksha in India, and this idea of something beyond that. And so they would have these concepts of the soul becoming one with everything, one with God. You've probably heard of these concepts. And I sort of thought this was kind of uh, an Indian concept. And, you know, when you think of Christianity, take Christianity because it's the other big one that talks about heaven, talks about the afterlife. You know, Judaism, not so much. I guess uh, Islam as well, but I don't know too much about it. So you, my thought, my concept of Christianity was that, you know, it's like fluffy clouds and people with rings around their heads and wings and stuff, uh, the pearly gates and all that. But uh, I was just reading today, actually, Simone Weil is this uh, Christian mystic. And uh, someone said to her, well, if we don't see you in this life, I'll see you in the next. And she said, there will be no knowing each other in the next, something like that. 
So there's a deeper sense, a deeper spirituality beyond uh, this wandering on that sort of has the idea that there's some state of some higher state to just being born again and again or even going to heaven. It's becoming one with everything and so on. There are other people who, who try to jump even further and say, oh, no, no, that's still limited. You know, what is that state? So what? So you're up in some oneness state. And they talk about something even, and I don't know, I don't want to go into this too detailed, but they talk about deeper states that are neither percipient nor non-percipient. Uh, and the fourth type are, of course, the, annihil the annihilationists, the people who believe that when you die, there's nothing. That should be more familiar. There's a lot of people in the West who, in, in our culture, that believe who believe there's nothing after death. And then we die, that's it. A lot of people have trouble with Buddhism, even though they want to, they, they agree with so much of it, but then really have trouble with the idea that there might be something after death. It's just so uh, fantastical and, and uh, unsubstantiated, they would say. Right? We don't see any afterlife here. What we see is people being born and then they die, and when they die, that's it. The fifth type of person asserts uh, Nibbana here and now. That's what it says. means they, the fifth type of person is special. And that's what we're going to talk about at the very end. But this type of person gets caught in the present. So the first four are really about the future. I mean, it's kind of a mixed up numbering system here. So I'm not really, I'm sorry if it sounds a bit confusing. Because it kind of is. Uh, but first about the future. And particularly about the self. So whether it be about our concepts of what happens after we die or our concept of, of the self. What the Buddha says about all of these is that they're, uh, they're gross, they're, they're coarse. Which is important. The Buddha doesn't say it's true. And I've said this several times. The Buddha never says there is no self. People hear this about the Buddha, that the Buddha taught non-self and so on. And they wonder, could there really be no self? What would that even mean? They get very confused. And the confusion is coarse. The confusion is on this level, the same level of believing in a self. Whether you believe in a self or doubt a self, the doubt about a self. You're in the realm of, of coarseness, of a mind state that is not useful, not helpful. And it's very important that we understand how the Buddha replied, that a person who wanted to give the right answer would not say, no, no, Buddhism teaches that there is no self, that's that's wrong, There, there really there is no self. A person would say, your beliefs in self are just causing you stress and suffering, you're getting in your way, they're coarse. And that's how the Buddha replied. He, he, that's how the Buddha taught. He said, 
having found something better, having seen there is this, having known there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. So there is this is is referring to the freedom to the state of well, reality, really. If you want to paraphrase that, you could say, having seen reality, he shakes his head at all these views that people have. Because if in your mind you say to yourself, there is a self, what's going on in that moment? In that moment, the mind has some activity, there is some mental activity. In fact, even to say the mind has would be just a convention. All that we know, all that really is happening is an experience of thought. The, the conception, there is a self. Same thing if you say there isn't a self. Same thing if you say, I'm not sure, is there a self? Or you worry about it. What, happened to, what will happen to me if there's no self? All of that is experience. And having seen this, the Buddha has no use for such views. The Buddhist should have no use for such arguments or debates. Because they're seeing experience. They're, they're too busy with reality to get caught up in all that stuff. And so it, it, it's a bit of a cop-out because it doesn't answer um, the question. The question that people often have is prove it then. Well, they say, how, how, what proof do you have? What evidence do you have that there's anything after you die? So the first three we can easily discard by saying these people are just caught up in their views. But we say the same thing about the fourth person, a person who says, after death there's nothing. So this person is also caught up in their views, which is sort of a cop-out because we're just, we don't have time, it's almost like we don't have time for the, to entertain it. It's like, let go of that. There's too much going on and you got to worry about you know, the, the future. You've got to be concerned about where this is leading you. The Buddha says, such a person who gets caught up in, in uh, this idea that there's nothing after death is still caught up and they're going to go to a bad place when they die. So he, he doesn't give proof or evidence, which I think in the West we often want this evidence that there is some life after death. I've talked about this before and my take on it is the, the, the burden of proof lies on the people who say uh, experience stops at the moment of death. That we know that experience exists. We have first-hand evidence. I can, I can look and see, yes, there's experience. That's true. And yes, it continues on moment after moment after moment. But a person who says something is going to happen to you that's going to stop this, I would say, well, prove it. Provide me with evidence. And they show me the dead person, and I say, it has nothing to do with experience. I don't know anything about that being's experience. All I know is that this experience and it continues unimpeded. If you start to look at reality in this way, it makes so much, it resonates with you. This way of looking at the world resonates because it's, 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 there's laws to it. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. If you're mean and nasty, it corrupts your mind. If you're attached and greedy, you become addicted. We can see how this works. 
the idea that a death that just stops is it creates a whole host of problems that's probably where a lot of religion came from the ideas of heaven and, and a god and so on thinking of something higher when in fact this is all there is all there is is these experiences death doesn't stop that if you think it does you got to prove it but this suit isn't really about that question it's about the state it's about again states of mind and the state of a person's mind when they believe and hold on to any of these things instead of being mindful and doing the work that needs to be done to purify their minds really which is, which is according to buddhism the most important thing that we make our minds free from defilement all these views and opinions don't really matter so a second type of person has lots of views about the past. Moving right along, we'll talk about that. Speculation about the past. He labels it as speculation about the past, but we could broaden it a little bit and talk about speculation about the world. Because he says the self and world are eternal. Not, a, not entirely about the past. You could, you could say that. I'm not going to argue with the Buddha. But just to keep it simple, we're talking about views about my, what do we call metaphysics or no cosmology views about uh, yeah, I guess it's called metaphysics views about the nature of the world there's too many there's a whole bunch there's 16 of them I'm not going to go into them but it's about the self and the world it's about the the nature of the world and, and a lot about past life I would guess you know if you're if the idea of who you were before he doesn't talk about that though and that's not because I think in West we're not so I know a lot of our listeners have this sort of question who was I in my past life and the Buddha talks about that in other places he's not talking about it here There's speculation about about the world, really. What is the nature of the world? They speculate that we could turn maybe to the way religion looks at the world. Religion has all sorts of views, like the world was created in seven days, six days, six days. Um, some people believe what's the, this belief that the world is on the back of a turtle what is this there's this funny belief this that it's kind of derisive it's um, people atheists or atheists will talk about if the earth is on the back of a turtle, then what's the turtle on the back of? And so, and the person who was arguing said, oh, it turtles all the way down. Something like that. Which is, which they deride because it's not very well thought out. It, uh, it doesn't answer the question. 
it's an inf it's called infinite regress but lots of views you know views about views about the way things are views about the self views about the world if you think of all the religious views how hindus believe that this is just an illusion and these things aren't actually here this is god giving us something to play with or god playing with us or something like that we're not actually born and die we're actually seeing and none of these things are actually here it's all just illusion how people believe what what leads to heaven and these terrorists who believe that if you kill people or kill yourself you'll go to heaven uh, and Christians believe that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll go to heaven. The, uh, lots of different beliefs. And what the Buddha says about these beliefs is that well, it's important to distinguish. It's important because We fall into the habit of subsisting on belief, thinking that it's enough that I believe such and such. We gain comfort from our beliefs. I've met so many people in my time teaching, so many people who have such strange beliefs. And you can hear it in their voice that they, they feel like it's enough. They shouldn't have to justify themselves or prove or provide evidence. It's satisfactory as a human being. You've kind of done your job as a spiritual being to believe something. Right? We talk about believing in something. And I hope it's clear that that's not really sufficient. You know, you can believe in the very wrong thing. Having belief in something is by no means uh, support for it being useful, beneficial, let alone true. And so the Buddha says, I mean, the Buddha says, make a claim of knowing what's true. And that we all tend to. I mean, not just as Buddhists. I mean, as Buddhists, we tend to make these claims because of how, because we, of our experiences, because of how empirical our practice is. And that's important to, to remind ourselves, you know, I, I've seen what's real. This is real. Real is experience. And so he says that anyone could know for themselves, basically put it this way, that anyone could investigate reality and find evidence for all these crazy views is impossible. I mean, the Buddha knows that, knew that. All of us, through our practice, if you practice, it's not we don't have to call it practicing Buddhism. If you practice looking at reality, you'll see the same thing a Buddha did. I mean, you'll only see one thing, whatever it is. And it won't be all these crazy views, which come out of very, very, very different, many, many different things. They often, the, the most common is they come out of extrapolation, where you experience one thing and you 
extrapolate it to be something much, much more. Like you feel bliss or peace, and every religious tradition out there will interpret it in a different way. The same experience of peace. So Buddhism would say, well, it's an experience of peace. And in fact, he does. So let's move right along to the third section. When we get stuck in the present, some people are able to avoid these, what the Buddha calls future and past clingings. Clingings to what happens to us in the future and clingings to about how the world has gotten the way it is and I guess how the way the world is. And they only focus on the present and they become enlightened in the present, according to them. So some people find, what does he call, he has, he has layers here, abides in the rapture of seclusion. They give up views about the past, they give up sensual pleasure, and they enter into the rapture of seclusion. Means their mind is secluded, peaceful. And they think this is the peaceful, this is the sublime, this is Nibbana. They enter into the rapture of seclusion, this rapture, this blissful state. And then that state ends. And they scramble to get back, and when it doesn't come back, they experience grief. With the cessation of the rapture of seclusion, grief arises. With the cessation of grief, the rapture of seclusion arises. And the Tathagata, this is a word for the Buddha, understands that is conditioned and gross. He, he, this is a refrain that goes throughout the sutta. That is conditioned and gross, but there is, but there is instead the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. So in this case, I mean, it's not bad to feel rapture of seclusion, but it's coarse and conditioned. It's limited. It's not. Uh, an ultimate good. It's problematic because of its impermanence, because you can't control it. So another person goes beyond that and they experience unworldly pleasure. Some people experience just complete calm and quiet, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. So they'll come and they'll explain it as this perfect tranquility, stillness of mind, emptiness, and there's lots of, the Buddha says, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Quite utilitarian description, which really cuts to the point. You know, you can have all sorts of flowery, you can say this is oneness with God or oneness with the universe. Dude, it's just a feeling. And the Buddha says, this is coarse, this is gross, this is conditioned. What does condition mean? Condition means it comes about because of causes. Right? You did something and you got there. 
Um, but the nature of conditioned things is they rely upon the the support, and when you stop supporting them, they disappear. So someone even right, so these people who attain these states they get, and if they get deep into these states they can say they can think to themselves I am at peace I've attained nibbana I am without clinging now it's possible for someone to to attain nibbana and and have that sort of thought hey, I'm attain nibbana and I'm without clinging. But there are many, many people and many examples of people who have the idea that they're free, that they've attained enlightenment, when in fact they haven't. And of course the way to tell is, do they have clinging? Is there some attachment? which really you can only find through being mindful. You can only see through strict and, and objective observation. But if you take our practice, the practice that we do, none of this really be, is a problem. You're able to see the, how glaringly um, problematic all of this is and how at odds it is with the very simple truth of reality. You can see yourself holding on to views, holding on to your outlook and, and your beliefs. And so the Buddha said, I teach the supreme state of sublime peace, which is liberation through not clinging. Really what we're trying to do is to work on our clinging, work on, look at the things that we cling to, the things that we like and enjoy and want and strive for and try to see them objectively it doesn't mean we're trying to see them without clinging we're trying to look at them and answer the question of whether they're worth clinging to or not even asking that question but look at them clearly to see the the, the unfortunate truth that none of them are worth clinging to and that unfortunately we've been clinging to things that are not worth clinging to and in fact, nothing is worth clinging to. Not even the view that I have attained Nibbana, not even the idea of attaining Nibbana. And that is the Panchataya Sutta. Some interesting insights. Definitely worth the read, but for now I hope it's been somehow insightful and helpful to direct our attention in our meditation practice. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in.